get them in our head, but actually go slow down a little bit and think them through. And so that's what we're going to do together this morning. And so rather than a sermon outline per se, we are going to walk through the text almost verse by verse, not like that we're going to spend a lot of time on each verse, but we're going to go through it one section at a time and ask questions as we go. And I'm going to share with you some of the things that I've learned in preparing for this sermon and some of the ways that you can do the same kind of thing as you read through Scripture seeking to encounter Jesus. And so we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And we're going to start by getting the whole passage in mind. So we're going to read it as we do each Sunday morning. And I'm going to ask you to stand together for the reading of the Word of God. We do this to honor the Word, to participate, to remember that this is where we're coming. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All right, it's not on the screen anymore. That's okay. I'm going to keep going from the scriptures. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Oh, there we go. We're getting it back up. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can still encounter you today, and we ask that we would. Be present to us this morning. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we may hear you, meet you, and know you more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, you can jump it back to verse 1 if that's okay. 
So let's start at the beginning. You may be seated, that's okay. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now let's pause there. When you're reading the scripture, the first thing to do is the same thing you would do when you're reading everything else. Make sure you know what's going on. If I come across a book, a word in a book, and I don't know what it means, I look it up. Pharisee is a word that you may or may not know much about. You hear this word lots if you've read the Bible, if you've spent much time here, but there aren't any Pharisees today, not in the technical sense of the word, though we might use it as an insult every once in a while now. Um, The Pharisees were a group of people in the time of Jesus. They were a group of Jews who were quite well-respected, and they had a particular view of what it meant to be a good Jew. That's, that was the, the key question back then, was what do we need to do to get back on track? So if you were to read the Old Testament, you would find a story of the nation of Israel called to be the people of God, called to be a light to the world and a blessing to the nations, called to represent God and be set apart and, and to be blessed. And they had enjoyed seasons of blessing in their history, but it all fell apart because of disobedience and because of idolatry because of injustice and because of cruelty. And God had said, after hundreds of years, enough is enough. And he had sent them into exile. And they had lost their land, and they had lost their blessing. And and most hurtful of all, most painful of all, the presence of the Lord had left the temple in Jerusalem. And slowly, the people of Israel had made their way back into their own land. But it was clear to anyone with eyes to see that things were not the way they were supposed to be. There were no prophets. There was no presence in the temple. They were under Roman rule. They were in their land, but they were not their own people. They were oppressed, and they were beaten down. And they'd been this way before. This is the story in Egypt. We walked this in Exodus all throughout the fall. And so they want God to show up and do something about it. And... More importantly, the prophets before the exile had all promised that this would happen, that God would show up, that the day of the Lord would come, that the kingdom of God would be present once again. And so the question for Jews was, how's this going to happen? And different groups of Jewish people had different answers, and the Pharisees had a particular answer. This is going to happen when we finally get our act together and start obeying Torah, start obeying the law. Some Pharisees taught that if every Israelite could obey the law for one day, then the Messiah would come. And so Pharisees tended to be well-respected. They were the kind of people you would want to have over for dinner, that you would be happy to have dating your daughter, Right? They're, they're law-abiding, they're, they're, they're honorable, they're honest, they're like, you know how this person is going to behave. They are an upstanding citizen, all right? Um, and they tried to get other people to do the same. So this is who's coming to Jesus, is a Pharisee. But he's not just a Pharisee, is he? Because he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is to say that he was not only a scripturally well-educated man, and a Pharisee would have been. They would have had large portions of the Old Testament memorized, and they would have known the rest of it quite well. 
Uh, lots of Pharisees would have had the entire Torah, the entire book of Psalms, and some of the prophets known by heart. Um, he's also, though, politically smart and a leader. He's a member of the ruling council. This is not a nobody who is coming to see Jesus. There was this man, and he came to Jesus at night. So we're doing an engaged reading of the scriptures. Why is he coming to Jesus by night? And you, we don't know. John doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us an insight. He doesn't read Nicodemus' mind for us. We just have to think about this. He tells us. He tells us he's coming to Jesus at night. What's going on? And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I tend to think that Nicodemus was shrewd. He's a member of the ruling council. You don't get to be a member of the ruling council by being uncautious, right? He's politically aware. And Jesus is an unknown quantity on the playing field right now of the political world. He's doing amazing things. He's performing miracles. There's a buzz about him. People are talking about Jesus. But where does he stand on the really important issues of the day? Nobody knows yet. This is early in the story. So Nicodemus is being cautious. He's being politically aware. If I, a public figure, go out to see Jesus in broad daylight in front of everybody, well, then I'm sending a message. And I'm not sure that I'm ready to send a message yet, so I'm going to come see him by night. But he does come see him. Don't let that slide by. He does come to Jesus. He seeks Jesus out. And that's a big deal, too. Just before chapter 3, John has told us that many people believed in Jesus because of the miraculous signs that he was doing. Nicodemus is clearly one of those people. Because the first thing he says is, we know you're a teacher from God because no one could do this stuff if they weren't. So he has heard enough about the signs that Jesus is doing that he's saying, okay, I want to know more. Let's talk. And Jesus seems to assume, I think rightly, that Nicodemus has come to him to have a serious theological discussion. Because the first thing Jesus says, Jesus, no preamble. There's no small talk. We know you're a teacher. Oh, how do you know that? Tell me about that. What? No, it's just like straight in to the issue, the kingdom of God, right? This is the issue on the minds of Jewish people in the day of Jesus. When will the kingdom of God be present again? What is going to make this happen? And Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, that should confuse us. If you have a Bible with notes in it, it will almost certainly tell you that this verse can also be translated, born from above. It's not an accident. Jesus chooses his words carefully. He means to say both. But neither one is particularly clear. And you may read that, and if you are well-versed in Christianese, you may read right over it, because we tend to use this phrase, I'm a born-again believer. You know this is the only time in the Bible that this phrase occurs? And it occurs when Jesus is talking to one of his most well-educated conversation partners, and that conversation partner doesn't get what he's saying. So use born again if you want to, but don't use it in an evangelistic context where the other person has no idea what you're talking about, <laughs> because then it's just weird, and you should get some kind of reaction like what Nicodemus says, and he's almost vulgar, right? Like, uh, yeah, that's impossible. You can't actually enter a second time into their mother's womb. Like, you can't 
you can't do that. That's not a thing, Jesus. Um, so, so how is this going to happen? Now, a couple of things here. Nicodemus is only taking Jesus on one of the two meanings, born again, not born from above. And he's being quite literal-minded. Now, he, he has no reason not to be quite literal-minded. And so his confusion, thankfully for us, leads to a further explanation. And at this point, Jesus is not, he's not uh, concerned or critical of Nicodemus not understanding. He will be the next time Nicodemus asks a question. But so far, he's just going to explain further. What is this born again? What is this born from above? Well, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Okay, still not really fixing my question here, Jesus. Born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So, part of what he's saying is, you're asking me how I'm supposed to get back into my mother's womb so that I can be born again. And I'm talking, I, Jesus, am talking about a different kind of birth. I'm not talking about being born of the flesh again. I'm talking about being born of, the, of water and the Spirit. And that can only occur by the power of the Spirit. No mother can give birth to you in the Spirit. So you're not asking the right question. The right question is not, how do I get back into the womb? Because that's not the kind of birth we're talking about. We're talking about a different kind of birth. We're talking about being born of water and the Spirit. And this, Jesus thinks Nicodemus should understand. Because this is a reference to the prophets. When the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, the day when God himself will show up, when God will send his Messiah and he will right what has been wrong and he will set the kingdom back into place, quite a few times but most specifically and powerful in Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophets speak about how we will be covered with or sprinkled with or anointed with the cleansing water of God and filled with the Spirit of God. And in these things, we will have new life. Right? And that's what he's talking about. Now, for most of us here we read, and they are born of the water and the Spirit. And we don't know that. We don't have Ezekiel 36 in mind. I, I didn't. I had to look at the, the scholars who spend all their time on this kind of stuff. And that's okay, because Jesus goes on to explain more, and the Gospel of John goes on to explain more. But one of the things you can do is you can have Bible dictionaries or websites or things open that will give you these kind of references. And depending on which kind of study Bible or resource you have in front of you, they're going to include some and not others, and that's okay. It's also okay to read this without those and think, you know what, I'm still not sure what this means, and you put a pin in it. You say, I still have a question here about this whole born of the Spirit business. Great. If you keep reading the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about the Spirit quite a few more times, and you can build a picture of what he is talking about, which is actually what John intends. The Gospel of John is written such that you get questions early on in the Gospel that are answered as you keep reading. But that doesn't happen if we're not doing an engaged reading where we note our question and keep it in mind to think about later, right? To see where John takes this, to see what Jesus 
has to say further on the issue of the spirit and flesh. But here in this conversation, Nicodemus is supposed to get this. Jesus goes on to talk further about the birth. He says, you shouldn't be surprised when I say this, because just like the wind, the spirit is a mystery. Right? The wind blows and we see its effects, but you don't really know where it's coming from or where it's going. The same is true with the Spirit. This isn't like being born of your mother. It's not like that. It's not something that you get to understand and know and, and walk through all the phases. It's different. Now, Nicodemus is still confused. Um, although, the question, I think, is quite sincere. How can this be? In other words... How is it that I can be born of water and the Spirit? How is it that you're telling me these things? How is it that these prophecies are being fulfilled? Jesus, what is going on? Now, the first thing Jesus says is you should get it. Um, you are Israel's teacher. You should be starting to connect the dots as I say these things. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say you should get this and then leave. He says, you should get this, but then he explains further. And we enter into the longest of Jesus' discourses in terms of his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, very truly, he's still talking about, like, how is it that he can say these things? You know, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but you still don't accept our testimony. You don't believe, even after all the things I've done. Um, I'm speaking to you of, of earthly things, of the things that are right in front of you, what are you going to do as I speak of heavenly things, which is what he is doing right now? So part of the implicit question is, how can Jesus be talking about these things? Well, this is his answer. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. How can I talk about these things? I've been there. That's how I can talk about these things, which is a pretty stunning claim to make. And Nicodemus is probably reeling at this point, though we don't hear from him again for quite a few chapters in the book of John. Um, so, how can I talk about these things? How can these things be? First of all, because of who I am. No, not me, Jesus. <laughs> because of who Jesus is. Because he is the Son of Man who has descended from heaven in order to be with his creation. But secondly, because of what he is going to do, now, this is where we get into the key where we talk about discipleship and evangelism. As Nicodemus encounters Jesus, two things become very clear. That at the core of what is going on with Jesus, or, sorry, I should say three things, are who he is, what he does or will do in this case, because he hasn't done it yet when he's talking to Nicodemus, but what he's done from our perspective, and how we respond to him. Those are your core issues. Who is he? What's he doing? And how do we respond? So he is the son of man who has come down from heaven. He is God himself. He is the king who has come to take up his throne. But how he will do that is not the way that we would expect. And here Jesus continues to rely on Nicodemus' knowledge of Scripture. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
Okay, clearly another Old Testament reference. As soon as you hear the word Moses, you hear that name, you know this is another story from the Old Testament. And when you know that, sometimes we miss it. We miss the water and spirit one. We don't know that that's going to Ezekiel 36. Okay, that's fine. You keep reading. He talks about the spirit some more and you'll figure it out. But when you know there's an Old Testament story, you should look it up. So when Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, you think, okay, when did that happen? And again, depending on your Bible, it may be written in there. You may just need to go look it up on the internet. Most of us are able to do that, do a quick search of Moses lifting up a snake in the desert. And you're going to be taken to the the book of Numbers. You're going to be taken to the continuing time of the wilderness wandering. So this is after Exodus, where we've been before. And I'm trying to see in my notes where it says, there it is, Numbers 21 is the incident that we're talking about. And in Numbers chapter 21, the people have been wandering through the desert for some of their 40 years, and they're sick of it. They're sick of eating the same food every day. They're sick of not having a place to stay, of having their own land. And so they start complaining. And they don't just complain. They don't just say, man, this is awful. What they say is, I wish we were back in Egypt where we had cucumbers. Um, (laughs) which I always laugh at because I don't like cucumbers at all. Of all the things you can crave, it's like, really? That's what you crave? But I do get it because if you've ever been like backpacking or something for a long time, you want fresh food, right? Like you want, and cucumbers are are nice fresh food. Anyway, it's like they've forgotten everything about what Egypt actually was. All they're remembering is the one good thing, the cucumber, the fresh food that they liked, but they're forgetting the slavery and the beatings and the oppression and the killing of the firstborn children. And it's like, how do you forget all that? But somehow they do, and they say, we want to go back to Egypt. And, and there's almost this kind of moment of God saying, okay, you want to go back to Egypt, let me remind you what Egypt was like. And poisonous snakes are set loose in the camp. And they start biting people, and people start dying. At the same time as poisonous snakes are being let loose in the camp, snakes being the symbol of the power of Egypt, and poison and death being the reminder of what they experienced while they were enslaved there, God tells Moses to cast the image of a bronze snake impaled upon a pole. So the defeat of Egypt. And hold it up so that anyone in the camp can see it. And anyone who looks to the bronze snake will be healed of the poison. And healed and saved are the same words in Hebrew. They will look to the snake and they will be saved. And so, Mo, or so Jesus here, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now John is awesome for the way that he does this because lifted up is glorification language. We lift up our praises. We lift up the people we want to honor, right? The crowd put someone up in the air because they think they're awesome. It's, it's this language of, you know, of cheering and praise and celebration. And here Jesus says he'll be lifted up, but not like that. He'll be lifted up like a snake impaled upon a pole. And of course, we know that in the Gospel of John, and if you've read through it, if you haven't read through this, you don't know it, but if you've read through this, you've seen it, that the moment of lifting up, the moment of exaltation and celebration and praise and honor is the cross, where Jesus is impaled upon a pole that all who look to him, that all who believe in him might be saved. And just as the snake is the image of the defeat of evil, 
Jesus on the cross is the image of the defeat of sin. And Paul picks this up. He says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So how can this be? Because I will be lifted up, just like the snake in the desert. And everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. And what bridges now is the love of God. Why is this the way it is? There's these implicit questions. Jesus has stopped waiting for Nicodemus to ask them. He just goes one to the next because God loves us. That's why this is happening. It's the same reason that there was a snake in the desert. It's why he didn't actually let them go back to Egypt. Can you imagine if they'd gone back to Egypt? Pharaoh would have just killed them all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the why. Why is it that this is going on? Because of the love of God. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the point. However, Jesus doesn't stop. However, our response determines our place in this. Again, this is going to send Nicodemus reeling. Nicodemus would have had some very strong beliefs about how he was going to get into the kingdom of God. By obeying Torah and being a Jew, his entrance is assured through racial and moral lines. Now Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, you get to be a part of that based on how you respond to me, based on how you respond to Jesus, to who he is and what he's doing. And if he didn't come to condemn, but if you don't accept him, you have condemned yourself. Now, the picture here, there's so many different ways we can talk about this, and Jesus starts mixing metaphors immediately. So you've got the picture of belief, or allegiance is another, is a better way to put that. If you're waiting for the kingdom of God to appear and the king shows up, then whether or not you're a part of that kingdom is based on whether or not you give your allegiance to that king. That's just, that's just the way it works. Jesus isn't saying something strange when he says this. Like, that's, that's how it is. If one king dies and another king rises, you're either a part of his kingdom through allegiance to him or you're not, right? But there's another analogy that Jesus immediately goes on to. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's another, it's another metaphor of decision, right? If the kingdom of God is like light, then the question is, are you going to step into the light or not, right? It's, again, it's just the way it is. You can live in the light or you can stay in the darkness. You can't do both at the same time. And your response to the presence of that light decides where you are. Right? Sometimes, and so picture yourself waking up in the morning and someone flicks on the light and then you hide under the blankets. <laughs> that's not evil. That's not bad. That's not a problem. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Like it's, it's one or the other. It's the way it is. Your response is determinative for you. It's the deciding factor. Um, now it's only possible because the light is there. It's only possible because the king has come, Right? And so the good news, the good news is back here, starting in verse 13, that the Son of Man has come down from heaven to us to be lifted up 
on a pole like the snake in the desert, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life through the love of God, that we may not perish. That's the good news. The question is, how do we respond to that? Now, that may be where you need to stop this morning and just ask yourself how you want to respond to that. If you haven't responded to that before, the invitation is open right now to respond in faith, to give your allegiance, to step into the light. Right? We step into the light through confession of our sins and acceptance of the forgiveness of God. We give our allegiance through confession of His Lordship and the decision to follow Him. And we have faith by walking those things out. Not perfectly, because none of us are perfect and God doesn't require perfection, but ongoingly throughout our days. That may be where you're at. I want to keep talking for a couple minutes, though, because just as when we're talking about the Spirit, I won't flip all the way back, we may think, okay, being born of water and Spirit, what is going on there? Tell me more about this Spirit, right? And you've got to read further in John to hear that. One of the things that happens to those of us who have made the choice to respond with stepping into the light and giving our allegiance to Jesus the King is that sometimes we have a really incomplete picture of what's going on. And often that incomplete picture comes from a misunderstanding of the words eternal life. Now, this is one of those places where thinking we already know something threatens to prevent us from really digging into it. Because we, like Nicodemus, tend to be pretty literal-minded, pretty flatland. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, ha, 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 very funny. What am I supposed to do, get back into the womb? Because that's not possible. And then Jesus has to say, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about here. We read the words eternal life and we go, oh, life forever. Great. Well, if eternal life just means life forever, then why does Jesus have to say, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life? He's saying the same thing twice. Um, why is it that in the middle of this conversation, Jesus shifts the metaphor from kingdom of God to eternal life. Twice he's talked about seeing and entering the kingdom of God, and now he's talking about having eternal life. Eternal life, as a phrase, like the word spirit, is something that John is going to spend the rest of his gospel building up. To a high point in John chapter 17, 3, where he says, this is eternal life, that they know the Father and the Son. That's not he says, and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, if eternal life is life forever, then how can he say, this is eternal life, that they know God? It doesn't really work. So what's going on? Now, if you don't have any resources and you're not hearing a sermon, you put a pin in that too and you keep reading and you're going to find that Jesus talks about eternal life quite a lot in the Gospel of John. And if you start putting those pieces together, you're going to end up with a really good picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says eternal life. And part of what he's talking about is living forever. We're not wrong when we think that. 
we're right, we're just missing a whole bunch of the rest of the puzzle. And it matters because if all eternal life is, is living forever, then we end up with a model of evangelism where I become a ticket salesman. And I have to sell you a ticket to heaven. And if you get your ticket to heaven and it's been punched and you know you're good and you're going to live forever, then we're done. And that model leaves no room for discipleship. It leaves no room for most of the gospel. Um, It certainly leaves a lot of room for confusion around things Jesus keeps saying all the time about doing our deeds before God, um, about how you can come to him at the end and he can say, I never knew you. It's like some of that stuff starts to sound scary if what you have is a ticket model because you're left in this position of like, oh, but how do I know if my ticket's really been punched? How can I be absolutely sure Um, And then we start talking about all different kinds of ways in which we can do that. Now, some uncertainty around this, like that's not that there's something wrong with you. You need to talk through that and walk through that, and that's okay. But what really helps is getting a bigger picture. So what's the bigger picture? We won't do all of it today because John does develop this throughout his gospel, and we're going to come back to this in sermons down the road. But first is to note that it is equivalent to entering the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God and having eternal life are things that Jesus uses interchangeably, both here and in the other gospels. And nobody who's read the Old Testament, none of the Jews in Jesus' day, hear the phrase the kingdom of God and think, oh, that's where we live forever. Um, At least not only that. The kingdom of God is about the rule of God, the ways of God, the character of God being brought to fruition, brought to being enacted and fulfilled among us, is to live a life where we are experiencing abundance and joy and peace and righteousness and fun and fellowship and life to the full, right? And eternal life is all of those things. And it's not just later. It's now too. It's to experience the presence of God. Right? And one of the key pictures around eternal life is to be fully in the presence of God. And so we get a taste of it now, and we walk forward into its fullness later. Now that starts to give you a whole different picture of what it means to be doing evangelism or discipleship. Because if eternal life is for now and later and it involves the fullness of the presence and the ways of God, then what we are being invited into is to begin to walk that now. Not as, oh, another thing I have to do, but as a gift. It's kind of like saying, look, you can go to Hawaii for a week, or you can start living there now and enjoying that forever, more and more and more each day until, you know, it gets better than you could ever imagine, and then it keeps getting better. Um, You know, one day you could have your back healed, or today you can start doing things that will make it feel better. Like, it's not so much a, we, I don't know why we get stuck on this, okay, I'm good to get to heaven one day, when Jesus is saying, no, I want to give you parts of heaven right now. And our, our response is sometimes, yeah, but that sounds like a lot of work. I'll just take it later. I'll just, you know when I'd really like to have a million dollars? the day before I die. That would be perfect. (laughs) Like, why wouldn't I want to start receiving this now, right? And that's what discipleship is about. Now, it's not all easy. That's because we live in a dark world, right? You You go back to the end of this passage, 
And we're always going to live with and around people who have, who love darkness. And we ourselves are mixed. We have a love of light in us, but also a love of darkness. So don't take the picture of all the good things I just said and said, oh, so it should be smooth sailing and super easy. Look, Jesus died on the cross to make this possible. If we're going to follow him, we ought to expect some persecution as well as some joy, right? It's a both and. But we're not being told one day. We're being told now. And therefore, evangelism becomes the process of introducing people to the kingdom of God, to eternal life already, while also talking about the promises for the future, right? It's a both and. So again, the way that we often think about this, about the ticket to heaven, about living forever, look, I want to live forever, okay? And I want to be in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns, and I want to know that that's going to be the case. I don't want to throw any of that stuff out. I just want to fill in the picture so that we're thinking about the whole thing. And, then, and, and that begins to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. That everyone who does evil hates the light. Oh, sorry, next one. That whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I want to step into the sight of God now. Awesome. And I hope there's lots of me too's. If that strikes a chord, so that leaves two places we've talked about this. If you are a person who needed to hear that invitation this morning, that it's your response to Jesus that matters, and you've never responded to him in faith, in allegiance, in stepping into the light, and I go back to that and I say, do that this morning. And if that's you, please come and talk to somebody so that we can walk with you in that. Myself, Marissa, Darius, other people you've seen up here. If you've made that decision before and you're here this morning, then the challenge to you is to keep going into the kingdom of God, both in terms of discipleship and evangelism. And if you're not entirely sure what that looks like, start with where we were last week. Look, there's Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Start also with where we are this week, with the Spirit, with eternal life. And you can keep reading in John to find out more of those things. You can come talk to me and find out more of those things because he is worth pursuing because he's, he's got so much good stuff for us. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for Nicodemus and that we get to hear about this because he came to talk to you. I thank you for the rest of the story in the Gospel of John. I thank you for the rest of the story up to today. And I pray that you would lead us in following you and in drawing others to do the same. Give us opportunities to preach and embody your gospel and call us deeper and deeper into faith, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.